Well, a hardja, Shaw Jerry Adams are Rayshon, August Tasola Gomsago will Shibsha a lig Gomoy. By the time you get to listen to this uh, podcast, the 12th will be over for another year. And, uh, you know, it was clearly a big day out for those who marched to celebrate the Battle of the Boyne and others who lined the routes to support them. And the vast majority of those involved, especially in rural areas, clearly see the 12th as a family day out. They love the pageantry, the banners, flags and street arches. They also love the marching bands, the uniforms, the fifes and drums, bagpipes and flutes. And I also like these musical instruments. So there are issues that we have in common. But there are other matters to be looked at. Beneath and behind all this crack is the history of Orangism and the deeply sectarian nature and role of the Orange in creating and upholding the Northern State. Add to that an overdose of anti-Catholic bigotry and you get the deeply offensive and provocative behaviour of some of those which was prevalent at the uh, marches in some places. And the bonfires... I can't imagine any modern society where bonfires would be built on public streets and roads close to homes and public buildings, including hospitals. The lighting of bonfires to mark events goes back centuries in human history, and it's not confined to the Orange or indeed to Ireland. But in most other cultures, the fires are modest affairs on hilltops or edges of fields. Indeed, in many places nowadays, there are confined to designated sites and to beacons in steel containers. They're certainly not the dangerous stories high pyres festooned with sectarian banners and flags, effigies, religious icons or images of politicians. And could this burning of images associated with others have its roots in the annual ritual burning of an effigy of London of Lundy, the traitor of the siege of Derry. And what of the danger to and the damage to the environment? If I burned rubber tires in my backyard, I would quite rightly be prosecuted. That doesn't happen if these burnings are associated with the orange, as far as I can tell, in any case. And while a global movement has emerged everywhere to raise concerns about climate warming and damage to the environment, in this place, thousands of rubber tires are burnt and poisoned the air every July. Why are laws governing these matters not enforced? Are laws dealing with incitement to hatred? Surely no decent Orange member wants to be associated with such behaviour. Surely Orange leaders have an obligation to make this clear. I uphold the right of the loyal orders to march and to celebrate the Orange tradition. They don't need me to say that, but that's my position. I, I objected to and would continue to object to those marches which go into communities or neighbourhoods that are not wanted and which are co-trailing exercises. In the same way as we have to object to the sectarian 
or to the hate crimes that are part of a, a small number of the Orange events. And I want to stress that it only takes a small number of uh, folks to do these unacceptable actions. The vast majority of the parades go off without real incident or without any uh, remarks. And the Orange is part of what we are. And when the union is ended, there will continue to be Orange events and the Orange will continue to have the right to celebrate its traditions in the New Ireland. But the Orange clearly has a lot to do to make its behaviour more acceptable. And it doesn't have to wait until the New Ireland to do this. Measures, actions, initiatives should be taken now to take the sting, to take the hatred, to take the tension out of the marching season. And in fairness, there have been very worthy efforts to do this. And they continue to this day. Every July, community representatives in Belfast, Lyes and Place Point areas to ensure that calm is maintained. And while the rest of us are asleep in our beds, sensible loyalists and sensible Republicans keep the peace. Dialogue is central to this. Many years ago, Derry led the way when talks between the Bogside residents and the loyal orders put in place arrangements which facilitated the conduct of orange parades in that fine city. Now the marching season in Derry is generally peaceful. The irony these days is that recent street disturbances there, and they were limited and unpopular, come from a different source. The death of Lyra McKee in 2019 at the hands of a so-called dissident group is a tragic example of the stupidity of those involved. So there's still a lot more to do to make our society tolerant and fair. And those of us who rail against the unacceptable aspects of Orangism need to be avowedly anti-sectarian. We don't have to like the Twelfth, but we can and do put up with it. The Orange Parade in Rosnaula and Donegal is held up as a good example of a peaceful, non-contentious, acceptable Orange event. Years ago a Donegal Orange Man interviewed on Radio Ulster on why this was so while there was chaos on this side of the border replied because we don't threaten anyone in Rosnaula. There's learning for all of us in that. May all our twelfths be like Rosnaula. Another event that uh, got into the news and I have to declare a personal interest in this is the way the British Bill of Shame, which is proceeding through the British Parliament, was amended to prevent uh, former internees wrongfully imprisoned from taking action or from certainly getting compensation for the injustice uh, inflicted upon them. So, we all know, I, I presume, that internment was introduced 52 years ago. It's next month, actually, on the 9th of August. In the early hours of that morning, 342 men and boys from nationalist homes across the north were dragged from their beds. Many were badly beaten and forced to run a gauntlet of battle, baton-wielding British soldiers. 14 
the hooded men were subject to days of sustained torture. It was a traumatic moment for society in the North. In Ballamurphy, 10 local people were shot to death by the British Army. Another man died of a heart attack when accosted by them. I was interned in 1972. I was released and re-interned in July 1973. On Christmas Eve in 73, four of us made a failed attempt to escape. The following July, I tried again and failed. For these two escape attempts, I was sentenced by a Diplock non-jury court to five years for attempting to escape from what was referred to as lawful custody. Fast forward 32 years to 2009 and a researcher working for the Patpanookan Centre uncovered a memorandum dated the 8th of July 1974 from the Director of Public Prosecutions to the British Attorney General. In it, the DPP warned the Attorney General that before they decided to go ahead with the escape charges, they should understand that there was a possibility that there would be escapers and many other detainees held under the orders which have not been signed by the Secretary of State himself may be unlawfully detained. So far from being charged with attempting to escape from lawful custody, here was the Director of Public Prosecutions warning that the custody may indeed have been unlawful. Brits said nothing about any of that. It took 10 years of diligent work on part of my lawyers, but eventually the British Supreme Court in 2020 ruled that the British Secretary of State had not signed my custody order and that I was unlawfully detained. The Supreme Court quashed my two convictions. The Department of Justice in the North decided in 2021 that I could not and should not get compensation. And I challenged this decision. In April, Justice Colton concluded that it was beyond reasonable doubt that there had been a miscarriage of justice, that is, the applicant is innocent of the crime for which he was convicted. He added, I'm satisfied that the applicant meets the test for compensation under the Criminal Justice Act 1988. Very straightforward, one would think. But almost immediately, Conservative politicians and unions condemned this decision. The Justice Department has appealed it also. Tories and unions are claiming that my illegal internment was a technicality. Several British lords brought in a rushed legal amendment that would deny compensation to any internee whose custody order had not been authorised by the Secretary of State and it's speculated that there could be three or four hundred internees involved, which of course is one of the main reasons why I took this case. Those who were bringing in the rushed amendment were persuaded to drop it in favour of a formal British government amendment that was rushed in last week. It went through the British House of Lords and it now goes to the British House of Commons to become law. In fact, 
It, it may be law by now. I haven't kept up to the last few days. However, no matter how the British government claims that this is a technicality or a loophole, the reality is that it was British law. The amendment, therefore, retrospectively, changes British law 50 years later in its convoluted effort to prevent former internees from claiming compensation for wrongful imprisonment. The amendment states that the order-making functions which the British ministers failed to follow 50 years ago should now be treated as having always been exercisable by authorised ministers of the Crown, as well as the Secretary of State. It also states that a custody order is not to be regarded as having ever been unlawful just because an authorised Minister of the Crown exercised any of the order-making functions in relation to that order. I don't really follow the gist of all of that, but George Orwell could have penned these words. 1984 is about exactly these type of verbal machinations. As for compensation, the British House of Lords amendment states that once the amendment is passed, no one can take a civil action or continue with one already in place if the person bringing the action claims that their imprisonment occurred because an interim custody order was unlawfully signed. So there you have it. Words mean what I say. Words mean that's the position of the British Parliament. Now, none of that will come as any surprise to those in Ireland and in countless other states around the world who have experienced British injustice. The leading counterinsurgency expert Frank Kitson described it well in his 1971 manual, Low Intensity Operations, Subversion, Insurgency and Peacekeeping. Mr Kitson wrote, the law should be used as just another weapon in the government's arsenal. And in this case, it becomes little more than a propaganda cover for the disposal of unwanted members of the public. So, in this instance, with the stroke of a pen, what was illegal 50 years ago has now been made legal. Another example of Britannia waving the rules when once she used to rule the waves. Two little uh, books to promote. They're part of the Lergus series. One is about Eddie Fullerton and his family, his life, his assassination and his family's campaign to get to the bottom or at least to get the British government to admit to what happened. The family now know what happened. He was murdered by a pro-union death squad acting in concert with British military and intelligence agencies. That book is available from an Ashog or from Republican uh, merchandising. And the other one is a little book by, by uh, myself, although I, 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 I have to pay tribute to Richard Macaulay 
for all of his research in these projects. And it again is part of the Lurgus series, and it's about Fra McCann and Alex Maskey, who recently retired from public office. Alex remains as the Concordia of the Speaker at Stormont. Interestingly enough, uh, in that position, because of the DUP, which did so much hard work to keep him from representing his representatives way back when he was first elected to Belfast uh, City Council. You remember uh, the DUP campaign to smash Sinn Féin. So that didn't work out too well. But uh, if you want to hear the story from Fra and from Alex's point of view again, uh, that edition is available through uh, an Ashog or Republican merchandising. And finally, finally, on the 3rd of August, we are producing a tribute to Rita O'Hare, who, who recently uh, died. And Rita was our great friend and a great activist. And I'm going to finish now just with a little poem. And uh, it's one of my own poems. It's a little book which I published during the pandemic, Poems for Hard Times. And this one, uh, because there's so many awful things happening to the people of Palestine, is a poem that I wrote in Gaza City in the fifth, the 8th of April, 2009, and it's simply called Gaza. And again, this book of poetry is available from Anishog. So Shin Shin, Gaza, rubble on rubble, twisted metal and ghosts everywhere. Ghosts of little children playing in the ruins. Little ghosts, peisty bakta, laughing, shouting, crying and dying in Gaza. Shinawela Harja, Gunyuri and Ta Livsha, Slan August Bonnacht Tea.